0: I'd like to talk about this evening is, is learning and understanding. There are many different um, motivations that bring people to a retreat. Sometimes they're motivations of growth. Sometimes they're motivations of crisis. I think it's whatever the motivation, there's clearly a looking for some form of change, some some greater depth, some greater understanding. And so that motivation or that willingness to learn is something that joins us all together on a retreat because it's clear that there's a direct link between learning and understanding and change. And the learning or the understanding that we look for in a retreat is is generally, people are not looking for some kind of new philosophy or belief system to adopt, uh, nor people very rarely are looking for a way to accumulate more intellectual information rather i feel what meditation does offer to us is the possibility of opening to a a qualitatively different way of learning a different way of seeing we're here fundamentally to learn about ourselves to learn about the way that we see and hold ourselves Understand more clearly the way that we see and hold the world around us because it's that seeing and understanding that offers us the possibility of transformation. Part of that learning and part of that transformation is exploring what it does mean to live without fear, without alienation. Learning. exploring the possibility of what it means to live within ourselves and within the world with openness and with spaciousness and with balance and we're exploring here also a very different way of learning not the ways that we've been accustomed to learning where everything takes place within the realm of our thoughts and concepts through comparison and evaluation and analysis, but learning a way of seeing that where we're not interpreting everything through the filter of our ideas and our opinions and our conclusions. Instead, exploring the possibility of seeing very directly, not dismissing the mind, not dismissing the intellect. The acknowledging that there is a possibility of another avenue of understanding that comes through immediacy of connection that comes intuitively and through that immediacy of our seeing to see what effect that kind of learning has. Because we're so familiar with the way of learning only through concepts and analysis. And we see that it often doesn't do a great deal to radically alter our lives, our being. To see whether it's possible through directness seeing, through intuitive seeing, to discover a quality of learning and understanding that really allows us to let go, that allows us to open and that allows us to deepen. This is our intention. It's not very easy at times to find the, the receptivity and the calmness and the openness that seems to be required to learn deeply, to see clearly. It seems that a, a certain stillness and a certain calmness of being is really essential for us to be really touched by the world. For us to be really touched by our own wisdom and what we encounter of course in meditation is the mind's unfortunate and almost bottomless capacity to introduce almost endless conclusions endless opinions endless judgments about everything into every perception and those judgments and those conclusions of course to tell us about the world and ourselves, or they tell us what we think about the world and ourselves in almost endless detail, and we can see again and again about how those judgments and how those conclusions act as a barrier, they act as a filter, they act as a kind of veil rather than allowing us to see and to be touched by what is. And so often our conclusions and our opinions they are a replay only of the conclusions and the opinions and the judgments that we've had in the past. And it does become clear to us that learning is about now. (coughs) It can only be about now. That real learning, real transformation happens in our relationship to this moment not to previous moments, not to future moments but to what is taking place in this moment that's not always easy for us to accept that this moment offers us everything we need to learn sometimes this moment seems very mundane and very boring and very kind of flat and we look at the thoughts or the perceptions or the conclusions that arise and we think well perhaps i have nothing to learn from all this we have often this idea that learning or understanding or insight is going to be something very special very isolated that is going to be a a kind of starting or dramatic form of experience. And this comes up so much in meditation, it's very difficult to free ourselves of the idea that meditation is in order to get somewhere special. That's what we think all the time, that meditation is to get somewhere special, some special place, you know, that there must be a kind of meditative mind or a meditative experience. We think that meditation is to get to some alternative maybe or special state of experience or other plane of, ex- of existence it's hard for us to free of ourselves of the idea that if we're really if something's happening in the meditation or if we're progressing there'll be a signpost of that progress that we'll have some kind of lofty or very exalted or very how kind of experience in our sitting. But these agendas that we hold about insight and these agendas that we hold about learning are the very agendas that really get in the way of true learning. Because as long as the mind is kind of holding on to something other, something different, something apart, Then it tends to be rather blind to what is offered to us in the moment that we're experiencing It's Looking for something extraordinary finds it very difficult to really open and learn from just the ordinary It looks for something, some sort of special or great revelation It becomes increasingly difficult then to open to and grow through the simplicity of what is with us already. Many people find themselves rather dismissive of the moment that they're in. It's just thoughts, it's just sounds, it's just the breath, it's just another sensation or another thought. And finally, to that dismissiveness, rather looking away from this moment. Because it really doesn't seem to hold any aura of being something special. And then we miss the learning that's offered. And so many times people come to, to individual meetings really feeling a little bit desperate. And they say, really nothing is happening in my meditation." I'm exactly the same as the day I started. Same mind, same thoughts, same sensations, same reactions. I just don't seem to be going anywhere. I'm bored, I'm restless, I'm agitated, I'm dull, I'm hopeless, I'm a failure at this. I'm just, nothing is happening for me. And because if we were to listen closely to those words The key word in those statements is me, is I, that I have a certain expectation and a certain attachment to that expectation, a certain agenda and an attachment to that agenda about what should be happening. Of course a great deal is happening. I mean, agitation and restlessness and boredom are very, actually, very dynamic experiences. A great deal is happening. But what is happening is probably not what I want to be happening or what I think should be happening. And these agendas and these expectations, of course, lead us into pursuing something other, something separate, something apart, reaching for something else apart from where and who we are. These agendas are often not even conscious. We're not even aware that we have them. But what is actually happening in those moments when we find ourselves turning away or resisting or dismissing this moment as it is because it is not worthy to us? Though a clear in that turning away or in that rejecting, we're saying this is worthless my experience is worthless it's offering me nothing I'm bored, I'm frustrated but those experiences we say to ourselves have no message for us they have no teaching for us they offer no learning to us it's of course a totally questionable assumption it feels very valid and very logical in the light of our agendas what we are expressing then is an openness to learning which is conditional that we're willing to learn from something that we value as being worthwhile and special but those agendas that we're willing to learn from don't usually include the ordinary and those agendas that we're willing to learn from often totally exclude the unpleasant the irritating the challenging In an environment like this, where you don't have much input, the contacts that you do have with other people make a very strong impression on the mind. You find yourself often having really quite extraordinary reactions. What often happens, of course, is a certain consciousness of other people. Although there's silence and, you know, you're not spending a long time discussing your life histories with each other. Of course there's a small tendency to create images of everybody else. Based on your perceptions, based on how they walk and what color socks they wear and you know, based on how they comb their hair and, you know what kind of noises they make. Mm-hmm. Especially what kind of noises they make, I And mean, it' interesting to see that in the impressions that I receive from other people, the reactions that arise, maybe you, know, you have someone beside you who has a, you know an unfortunate shuffle on their cushion, or you know you have a, a roommate who, you know, seems to have the tread of an elephant. I mean, manage, often many people find themselves managing. You know, they talk an hour of compassion and understanding, you know, sympathy for, you know, their their cold that they have or, you know, the extra weight they seem to be carrying or whatever. And yet those very token feelings of compassion and understanding so often are so quickly swallowed by a whole range of reactions. And often not the first thought that arises, I can't meditate. I can't possibly meditate until that person stops making so much noise. You know, I can't possibly get anywhere <laughs> until the person behind me will be still. You know, I can't possibly get any deeper unless this person in my room shows a little more sympathy and a little more mindfulness to help me. Those are the thoughts that arise that these things stop us from deepening and from learning. Because we have a few of those thoughts about ourselves, too. It is not just about other people, you know. We have a few thoughts about, you know, I mean, I can't possibly meditate until my knees start cooperating, you know. I can't possibly go any deeper until I get rid of this obsessive thought pattern, you know. You know, when I have the perfect mind, I'll finally get somewhere in meditation. These experiences and these reactions are fairly common, and they're fairly revealing to us those thoughts about I can't because of. It would be fairly helpful to ask ourselves where we think that learning is a part from our reactions. Where we think that learning is, apart from our relationship to these impressions that we receive from within ourselves or from other people, where is or where will we find the opportunities to let go, to open our hearts, to extend compassion, to extend generosity, except in relationship to all this that is happening in this moment it's not helpful to judge our reactions or judge our lack of compassion it is helpful for us to see again and again that it is the ordinary grist of life that offers us the opportunity for letting go that it is the very ordinary in life often the irritating often the difficult often the unpleasant that offers us the opportunity to learn new dimensions of humility of forgiveness and of compassion to read you a story about a community where Gurdjieff, that george had in france and there was one old man that lived in the community who was the personification of the qualities of anger and ill will He was irritable, he was messy, he fought with everyone, and he was unwilling to clean up or help at all. No one liked him, no one got along with him. And finally, after many frustrating months of trying to stay with the group, the old man decided to leave for Paris. Delta followed him and tried to convince him to return. They were deemed too hard, and then answered no. And at last, have offered him offered the man a very big monthly stipend if he would return. Now how could he refuse? When he returned, of course, everybody else in the community was aghast. And on hearing that he was being paid, while they were being charged a great deal to be there, the community was up in the arms. And Gertrude called them together, and after hearing their complaints, he explained, This man is like yeast for bread, he said. Without him here, you would never really learn about anger, irritability, patience, and compassion. And that's why you pay me and I hire him. <laughs> you may be wondering if anyone's being paid to be here. It's <laughs> not <laughs> the case. No one is being paid to be here. We don't know from where and who our teachers will be or where they will come from until we're willing to set aside our agendas, until we're willing to set aside our attachment to the special and pursuing learning according only to our expectations. It's not possible to have a conditional openness Just like it's not possible to have conditional compassion or conditional loving-kindness, it is simply not possible. These qualities deepen and grow when they are truly unconditional. Nor is it too true to believe that we are really only going to deepen an understanding when we're very tranquil and very undisturbed. It is often the opposite that our insight deepens most in those times when we are most challenged because that is the invitation to extend our boundaries. Our teachers and our learning are very rarely far from us. We need to discover what it really means to be touched, to be receptive and to cultivate too a a spirit of inquiry in the face of the impressions we, we receive and in the face of our own reaction. We might also ask ourselves, you know, why does the mind, or why do we, the mind seems too impersonal, why do we find ourselves seeking for the special, the lofty, the extraordinary? Why do we demand the special? Is it because we believe that we will only be made special if we then have have some startling, enlightening experience that we will be enhanced in some way or made more secure or have a more flattering identity only if we have some really marvelous breakthrough. Why do we believe even that we will learn more from some altered state of consciousness than we will learn from listening to the song of a bird? Why do we believe that we are going to be deepened and enriched more by some special experience than just by watching the branches moving in the wind? Is it because we believe that I will be made special only through contact with the special? That I will be made worthy only through contacting with that that which we value as being worthy? Why even do we hold these distinctions? Between the special and the ordinary, because these are the distinctions that lead us to pursue one thing as we reject another, to hold on to one thing, as we deny something else. These very distinctions that we find our subconscious of offer us a great deal of learning. And meditation is certainly not about achieving the special, nor is it about denying the ordinary. So much of what we do here is learning to see the ordinary in the special and the special in the ordinary. Learning how to embrace each moment with a consciousness that doesn't make those distinctions, doesn't make those separations, is really learning the art of transformation which is not dependent upon the objects we are with. That that is linked entirely to our way of seeing. A poem I'd like to read you. Blessed are the man and the woman who have grown beyond their greed and who have put an end to their hatred and no longer know illusions but they delight in the way things are and keep their hearts open day and night. They are like trees planted near flowing rivers, which bear fruit when they are ready. Their leaves will not fall or wither, and everything they do will succeed. We have a tendency to be so easily seduced by the world of objects and what we think about them. We conclude and think that our well-being our happiness our clarity is reliant upon the contents or the quality of the objects we're in contact with we think if i had less of one thing and more of another i would be happy if i had less boredom and more interest if i had less pain and more pleasure if i had a better mind if i had a different personality if i had a different environment if I was with different people, even if the weather was better, then I would be happy and I would feel well within myself. If I had less judgment and less projection, then I would be happy. But this is really not so much meditation. This is really an attempt to redecorate and manipulate our minds and our world. Sometimes changes are very necessary in our outer world. Sometimes changes are very necessary in our inner world. But no changes are ever brought through either craving or through aversion. Instead, we leave ourselves in a position where we are endlessly dependent and endlessly reliant upon the props that we have in our world. The transformation of consciousness is not actually dependent or reliant upon the contents of our minds, not upon the number, nor the quality of the objects we're in contact with. The transformation of our consciousness is not linked to how mundane or how special our thoughts are. It's not where we are or what we're with, but how we are present. How much can we let go of greed and resistance? How much can we let go of holding and avoidance? How much can we open and embrace with spaciousness, with equanimity and with compassion, what is with us right now? This is what wisdom is. It's not something special. And out of this wisdom, the right actions are born. The right choices, the right decisions, the right aspirations are born. When we see the world only through the filter of our likes and our dislikes, our aversions and our holdings, we live in a way where we're always creating opponents and then we must flee from those opponents that we have so much aversion to. And we would ask ourselves then, how can we even really be touched by the extraordinary possibilities of this moment when our minds are full of conclusions? How can we be touched by the simplicity of what is when we buy so much into the complexity of our demands and expectations? How can we even be touched by the goodness of heart of others when we find ourselves contracted through those demands? There's a Nasruddin story about the perfect apple. Nasruddin had barely finished his discourse When one of the scoffers in the crowd said to him, instead of spinning spiritual theories, why don't you show us something really practical? Paul Nazirin was puzzled. What kind of practical thing would you want me to show you, he asked. And pleased that he'd mortified the mullah and was making an impression on the crowd, the scoffer said, for instance, show us an apple from the Garden of Paradise. Nasrudin immediately picked up an apple and handed it to the man. But this apple's bad on one side," said the man. "Surely a heavenly apple would be perfect. A celestial apple would indeed be perfect," said the mother. "But given your present faculties, this is probably as near to a heavenly apple as you will ever get." Oh. To be aware of how our own conclusions. Get reflected in the world, how our own aversions get reflected in the world, how our own judgments get reflected in the world. We can carry so many of those conclusions, so many thousands, millions of conclusions. And what are our conclusions? What are we saying when we say, I know, I believe, I am or I have, or you are, or this is the way things are. So often what are those conclusions, those judgments, or those opinions, except you replaying at the stories of the past over and over again. And do they help us? Does any single one of those conclusions or opinions bring us any closer, any more connected to what is in this moment? Or do they not just keep us bound to what was? And in that also keep us contracted and divided. And do we need them? If we don't need them, and obviously we don't need a lot of those conclusions, I mean, some of them are fairly helpful, you know, we know not to walk in front of cars, we know not to put our hands in fires, we we know not to eat deadly nightshade, but the rest of them, Why do we hold on to that which we don't need? Why do we hold on to that which actually creates a filter and divides us from other people and from ourselves? There must be a reason. You know, when you go outside and you find your mind doing that little number where it has a description for everything. Obviously when we walk in the garden, you know, the the flowers are not kind of wearing labels or signs inviting us to judge whether they're good or bad. Nobody else is wearing a little sign on their back saying, you know, please judge me, you know, I need an image. Why do our minds produce such endless data for us? It's clear that these labels and these judgments do serve some sort of purpose. They make the world very familiar to us. And in being made very familiar, it feels safe. It feels safe because we can say, I know, or I am, or you are. I and mean, we don't even really have to question anymore. We know what to pursue and we know what to avoid. We know what we want to be with. We know what we feel righteous and rejecting. But do they really tell us about anything at all? Or do they tell us only what we think about things? And how many of those thoughts are really just the replaying of the past? In those conclusions we sacrifice so much depth. We accept superficiality and division. I'll read you a, a, an accountant, man. He said, I have a friend, a woman, a woman I know, already many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone I know you. People jump around. They're like a ball, rubbery, they bounce a ball cannot be long in one place rubbery, it must jump so what do you do to keep a person from jumping the same as with a ball you take a pin and stick it in make a little hole, it goes flat when you tell someone I know you you put a little pin in so what should you do leave them be don't try to make them stand still for your convenience you don't have to know them let people surprise you. This, likewise, you could do concerning yourself. We could do it concerning ourselves. We're not actually helped by the ideas of I am, I believe myself to be this, that or the other. We're not actually helped by our images. We're not actually helped by any of the definitions or the descriptions that we have. And there's so much freedom in being able to really understand that this is not who I am. There is so much freedom in really allowing those judgments and those labels and those images to arise and to truly understand that this is not who I am. The possibilities then become endless. The possibilities become extraordinary. The possibilities for exploration are really without end. Learning how to be still, learning how to be present, learning how to be patient with all things, that's all we need to do to learn how to open. It's not so much. It's not so complex. It's not so far away it's not so much in the future to learn how to be still how to be present how to be patient we find ourselves beginning to open to all things and then we discover that everything that we need to learn is with us already that it really never was apart from us that this thought this idea, this feeling, this sensation, this sight, this sound, it is offering us the opportunity to learn. It's offering us the opportunity for forgiveness, for humility, for compassion, for understanding, for extending ourselves, for letting go. It's not something separate, it's with us already. This is everything that we need for learning, everything we need for deepening. Is right here with us. Our challenge is to learn how to open to it. Not to contract around those isolated thoughts. Not to contract around those isolated images and feelings. When we don't contract around them, we don't react to them. And they come and they go. They come and they go. When we can allow them to be. And then we can learn from them. They don't stick within us. They have no power to mold who we are. The path of patience is in many ways the path of fearlessness. It takes enormous courage to stay with what is. The unpleasant, the difficult, the challenging. That patience is an expression of fearlessness. The deep willingness to listen, just to listen, I My mean, favourite I say that uh, deities, are the way that the Buddha is manifested, is in the, the deity of Kuan Yin. It is the deity of compassion. And Kuan Yin, translated, means one who knows how to listen to the sounds of the universe. It's remarkable patience to do that and a remarkable sensitivity which, in in itself, is compassion. And that patience, that listening, is learning, because we are touched. And when we are really touched, we learn, we understand, we deepen in wisdom. One last poem I would like to read you to end. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There's no way to describe it. or we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an ice over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, and fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, and clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? Male beings live with sensitivity. May all beings live with patience male beings live with wisdom. We have just two minutes sitting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.